Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Rachel Forsyth, Senior Reporter at Hort Week. And this week, I'm with Head Gardener at Beechgrove Garden, Scott Smith. Hi, Scott. How are you? Hi, Rachel. I am brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, good. Good to hear it. Um, no, we're so pleased to have you on as well. And we're going to dive into kind of your career um, as we go on. But I thought we'd start off with Beechgrove Garden, of course. Um, and it's only one of your hats um, is as presenter for Beechgrove Garden. And I believe you've just wrapped up filming for a little while. Is that right? Yes, so we normally do around 26 weeks in a row, which is quite a lot, six months. Uh, So literally every Tuesday we will go out, we will film an episode, which then gets aired the following week. And that starts at the end of March and it goes on until literally last week, uh, which would be the near the end of September. So it's a long old haul. It's every week we are out, we are filming, uh, produce 26 episodes. And then currently what's happening is we've been commissioned for an autumn series as well. So I have four weeks kind of off of filming and then we're jumping back in and doing another four episodes. back to it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Wow. Oh, exciting. What kind of subjects are you going to explore in that autumn season? Well, I am uh, going to be presenting two of the shows and I'm quite looking forward to doing a bit of the back to basics strands that we've been doing this year, which have been very popular. So I'm looking forward to talking about all the different colors that you get in leaves, why they're different colors, why deciduous trees drop their leaves in the first place, these kind of things. Um, okay, we yeah. will be covering a lot of the sort of typical autumn jobs, hardwood cuttings, how to prune, winter prune things like the grapevines and uh, gooseberries, blackcurrants, these kind of things. Uh, there'll be a few arts and crafts things. I think Kirsty's doing bug hotels and, and winter trough planting and Lizzie's doing Lizzie's doing uh, wreaths and, and using some of those lovely dried flowers that we had from this season in 
making autumnal wreaths and things like that. So we've got quite a, a varied range. You know, that's kind of one of the advantages is every presenter has their own thoughts and ideas and brings something slightly different to the table. Yeah. How much influence do you have over what is um, the subject of the week? A hundred percent. I say if it's not done, I'm throwing my toys out the pram and I leave. <laughs> I wish. A typical diva, yeah. Uh, absolute diva, yeah. <laughs> if you've not got the things in your rider. <laughs> uh, well, no, what what normally happens is we have a planning meeting a few weeks in advance with all the presenters there. And um, normally the producer kind of divvies it up to as to who's presenting what episode. So in the episode you're doing, you will have to pitch your ideas and plans and we will take what's deemed as the best ones and try and sort of factor that into making the show. So everybody who's got their thing can kind of come in and pitch. And of course, because it's a round table meeting, other people can, you know, maybe add to it or say, have you thought about this, that or the other? So it's kind of a collective, um, which is great. It's, it's, it's a really interesting way to work. It's a good team ethos. Yeah, definitely. And so you said those back to basic uh, subjects have been really popular. What's what's some of the other things you've been covering and and why do you think they're kind of proving to be the most popular? Well, that's interesting because sometimes you pop on a TV program and there's the assumption that you already know everything. Yeah. Or on the other hand, there's things where you have a program and quite often they'll give you all the lovely camera work and the dreamy sequence and a wonderful garden or you know even like even like some of these garden makeover shows they'll say here's what we want to do and you think that sounds great but then you don't actually see how they do it or or what they do it just skips right over it and before you know it there's someone got a perfectly laid out garden you think well I would have actually liked to have seen the person doing that Mm. so the back to basic strands I think have been very popular because what we're doing really um and the thing that i love most is to go into the who what why when where Mm. and really explain a topic even if it's something simple so for example one i did was on potting up so you know how do you know when to pot up what do you pot up into what size do you go into how do you know when it's ready all these little things that you think oh that's just basic knowledge but it's surprising what little signs and hints and tips and things that you can pick up on from these types of things. Absolutely. And do you think that it's opening up gardening to kind of a different generation or a different type of person who previously might have thought it wasn't for them or it was a bit, you know, closed off, I suppose, from them? Well, that's a great question because I think at the moment there is a bit of a struggle in terms of skill shortages. And certainly there seems to be a bit of a struggle to get younger people into horticulture. So for me, I am, I'm 33. I guess I'm technically classed as one of the younger folk. I'm, I'm still applicable to be in the, the YPHA. <laughs> um, Same. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm still under 35, which I guess is classed as, as young. Um, and I would say that really gardening, I think for me, has always been badly advertised. It's never really pushed to you at school. It's never really seen as a subject that you can study and, you know, horticulture in general, really. And I think that a lot of gardening programs, there's a bit of a misconception that it's always for older people or people who are retired and dossing about in their garden, these types of things. And I find that by doing these back to basics, Sometimes it's very, 
it, it, you know, it, it's so useful to people to see what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it so that they can get a grasp and an understanding. Because if you don't understand something, you don't really have an interest in it. Whereas I found personally, the longer I'm in horticulture, the more I love it because the more I understand, the more I learn, the more I see, and it just grows. It's like a snowball effect. So it's, I think it's always great to have that initial building block, that beginning to, to get you rolling and to get you involved and interested. And you can see how vast and, and wide horticulture really is. There's so many different fields, so many different scopes, so many different avenues that you can go down. You know, it, it really is just an absolutely wonderful subject. It truly, truly is. And I think once people come into this industry, they never want to leave. And there's, like you said, there's so many different avenues that they, they almost don't have to because if they want to try something completely different, they still can. Uh, it just seems to be like, like you said, getting people interested in the first place. Um, and the skill shortage is something we speak about all the time. Uh, we just did a panel on it at Four Oaks um, a few weeks ago. Uh, because you, and you didn't have your sights necessarily set on this job from an early age, right? You kind of fell into it at the very, very start and then never looked back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am, I am not the poster boy for horticulture from the beginning or anything like that. Well, I don't know. I think so, because it's kind of a, I think you're a very typical way that people get into the industry. So maybe you are. Could well be. Um, so just, you know, maybe people don't really know or anything, but I essentially went to school. I went straight from school into university because that was the way that my school pushed us. We were all told, mm. go to university. It looked better for them on the academic tables to have more pupils go into higher education if you really were not academic, then fine. You can maybe go to college and do lawn keeping, green keeping, hairdressing, that kind of thing. But for me, I was pushed into university and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I took the course that sounded coolest, as you do when you're 17, ethical <laughs> hacking and countermeasures. So cybersecurity, really, at the University of Aberdeen in Dundee. Mm. And I hated it. It just was not for me at all you know it was <laughs> as i say it's it indoors dark rooms stuck in front of a computer lack of air fat sweaty guys with trench coats and ponytails and it just wasn't my scene <laughs> i just thought now this is not this is not me this is not what i want to do in my life i don't want to spend <laughs> you weren't ready to get that trench coat uh no i could never really rock the ponytail as you can tell now from <laughs> just as well i never got invo invested in ponytails because because <laughs> uh follically challenged but yeah because I went to uni uh didn't like it I left and I literally went the next day to the job center and just said look I I'll happy to do anything uh and it just mm. so happened that there was a job for a seasonal gardener with the National Trust for Scotland at Kelly Castle which was just a few miles away from me and um mm. I went along had my interview the interview went terribly uh, I was definitely sure I didn't get the job <laughs> You know, we literally walked around the garden. The gardener told me all about the place and the history and the plants, and he pointed some stuff out, and I was going, oh, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. try to sound enthusiastic. <laughs> and then as, as soon as we went into the interview room, there was a table with six different jars with different plants on it, and he says, now, I've just told you what all these are walking around the garden, and I was like, oh. Oh, no. Oh, oh no. Yeah. And I couldn't name a single one of them. And I was like, oh, this this does not bode well. Um, but 
the short and long of it is that I got the job because nobody else showed up to interview. Amazing. So, <laughs> by default. Oh, <laughs> oh I was going to say your enthusiasm obviously uh, outweighed it, but okay. Well, that, that was my humble beginnings to horticulture. I got the job by default um, <laughs> and I absolutely fell in love with it. Just go in there, mm. you know, it was like, it was like Harry Potter. You opened the big garden gate you went in the castle was in the background you had all this beautiful arts and crafts furniture perfectly laid out vegetable beds big flowing herbaceous borders you know your topiary and it was just magical really and amazing yeah you know it took me a, a few weeks to sort of pinch myself and go actually you know this this is really cool i, I really like being here <laughs> and my boss at the time who's still a horticultural hero to this day mark armor he's still the head gardener there mm. he really made me see that horticulture is a career path and it isn't just necessarily a seasonal job or just something you do for a bit of cash it's a career path and he was so passionate and enthusiastic and funny and you know i actually really looked forward to, to going to work when you get up in the morning oh. and you're you know ready for work and you can't wait to get in and get stuck in and you actually end up staying longer than your finishing time you know i was supposed to stop at three o'clock and i was carrying on until five with everybody else even though i wasn't paid for it just because i was enjoying it so much um and that was me that was me well and truly bitten by the horticultural bug and stuck stuck in ever since I do think it, it does bite most people but do you think the kind of responsibility I suppose for lack of a better word to kind of attract those people and, and keep them here when they're there does lie with people like your old boss who kind of shared that enthusiasm and energy absolutely yeah because it's the people you work with that make the environment really you could go to some places I've worked in some places where you know there has been a bit of a toxic atmosphere or a difficult atmosphere mm. and the worst thing I think is for example when I worked in public parks was a lot of the staff were there because it was a paycheck they didn't have the enthusiasm wow. for horticulture they didn't have that I can't wait to get out and work it was just when's tea break when's lunch break when can I go home and mm. it's not a great way it's not a great mindset to be in you know they're not there because they're passionate so much about the job and about learning the plants and gathering information from all the different people you work from to try and better yourself there wasn't any of that in that environment it was just how little can I do before I have to go home and where's my paycheck and I think that is the absolute counter end to where you want to be you want to come in you want to be passionate you you know you really want to go around and I want to learn what this is what's that how do I get there how do I treat this plant you just want to take it all in and and I think that's so important to have people like my old boss who who will do that and who will share that enthusiasm and passion and more importantly share their knowledge because I feel the best people do share their knowledge and, and tell you all about it rather than hoard it yeah yeah absolutely is there anything else you feel like the industry could be doing? Uh, well, I have said before many a time that pay is feels quite poor in horticulture, especially for such highly skilled jobs, because, you know, they're talking about automation of jobs in the future and robots taking over. And I'm pretty sure gardening and horticulture has been identified as one of the few that could not be done by machinery because of the complex nature of it and because we have to adapt our jobs to the environment, to the weather, you know, it takes a lot of 
human interaction with plants. It's not just simply a case of switch on the robot, it'll do the job for you. And I feel like for our field, the pay has always been particularly poor when you compare it to the average for other jobs. So for example, my wife, she works in the oil and gas sector, which people are phenomenally overpaid, I would say. Um, but that's just due to the marketplace. You know, that that's not so much her doing. Yeah, no, <laughs> of course like, not. You know, yeah, fair play to her. If she wants to get paid plenty, fair play on you, go. But what I'm saying is that horticulture, I feel, is unrecognized and the skills that we have don't seem to be valued. And I, I'm not sure where where we would start with that one, whether it comes down to a government thing mm. or... You know, it really needs a bit of looking into, I think, by some of the leading bodies, the HDA and, you know, Young young People in Horticulture Association, these types of things. But, um, you know, I did say when I looked at a job advert the other week, for example, and it said skilled gardener wanted somebody with five plus years experience. They'll have your chainsaw ticket, your pesticide spray tickets, this, that and the other and yada, yada, yada. And you're getting about £23,000 a year and you just think oh, that's, oh. that's awful. You know, that's like an entry level job for an administrator who has no previous work experience or probably not even any qualifications. And you're expecting somebody who's worked in the field for several years, who's got a good set of skills, who's taken on quite a lot of responsibility um, for such poor pay. And that was a leading body. You know, that was one of the main charities within horticulture, really. Um, that was offering it and I just thought oh that was <laughs> yeah. and it's the same story same story around and about I, you know it doesn't matter who the organization is whether it's National Trust for Scotland or the National Trust in England or Historic Scotland Historic England uh, English Heritage all these kind of things or local councils or, or whatever most of them have a similar pay band and a similar pay rate and it's all generally fairly poor yeah, because it almost needs one of them to take that step and say, actually, no, we're going to up our pay. Mm. And then hopefully the others would follow, right? But it kind of take and you need that one that one organisation to take a stand in a way. Yeah, because the thing is, if you were a young person and you see the rise in price, you know, the cost of living crisis, you see how expensive it is now to get a house and a mortgage and things like that. And then you can see, well, oh, I could go work in horticulture for 10 years and then maybe I can get 30 grand. Well, it's not very, you know, it doesn't really give you much of an incentive to go into it and work hard for it, does it? Um, No, absolutely. You know, sadly, I've known a couple of people who have been horticultural students and have done their full apprenticeship. And because they need the money, they've actually left horticulture and gone into selling cars and things like this, you know, going to work for Arnold Clark or whatever. And you think it's so sad that they've had that opportunity and that chance. And simply because of poor pay, they've left the field. Yeah, it's because it, it's realistic, isn't it? Some people have to pick the pay over over doing something that they love. Yeah. Well, that's where I think you do get quite a popularity on career changers. There seems to be quite a lot of people in their fifties, mm. you know, late forties, fifties, even sixties, who've had a career, they've got good pay, they've paid off their mortgage, they've done what they need to financially to to set their life up in the right track, and now they decide, right, actually, I want to do something that I enjoy. So they switch into yeah. a career in horticulture, which when you think about it, you know, good for them. They're coming into the field, they're doing something that they love, but at the same time, it just goes to show you that it's not seen as a career path that's viable for a lot of people. 
almost seen as some sort of hobby or <laughs> yeah yeah I think sometimes the the fact that it's seen as a hobby do you think that that can devalue it a little bit sometimes the general public think of it as something that anybody could pick up and and I feel like sometimes the skills around it aren't aren't focused on as much there is an element of that yeah of course I mean it's like the person who cuts their hair at home when you go to a hairdresser they obviously know far better than you and they think well you think you know what you're doing but you don't yeah and you know, it's similar in, in gardening as well, really. Anybody can grab a lawnmower and scalp their grass or whatever. Or, you know, you get the typical white van man that's got a lawnmower at the back and a petrol hedge cutter and mm-hmm. pay them 20 quid and they'll go and massacre your garden. <laughs> but it's not quite the same, is it, as somebody who knows all the ins and outs. You know, it's like we are talking oh, about, horticulture is so vast. And, mm-hmm. you know, my job as a head gardener is I'm very much a jack-of-all-trades master and none, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, I have to know everything from lawn care to how to take care of trees and felling trees and aquatic plants and how to grow fruit and vegetables, how to propagate. You know, I have to know everything from planning and designing areas to go you know taking hardwood cuttings it's it it massively varies what you do throughout a throughout the year and there's so much more to it than just simply doing a spot of weeding or tidying up or you know these kind of things that you know if you went out and did a survey of the public and said what does gardening involve i bet you would get the same five six answers you know putting out flowers weeding grass and i suppose a lot of that is just people's attention aren't really drawn to what it truly involves and what the, the all the intricate details involved in it is. I mean, even if you follow these people who are nurserymen, you know, their job, although it's more narrow in its scope to raise plants, they're raising all sorts of different plants in mm. different conditions and under different pressures. And, you know, it's a phenomenally difficult job, I feel, for anybody who's in um production horticulture i've always been in amenity horticulture myself but mm. um i always feel for those people in production horticulture because there must be so much pressure on them oh my goodness and of yeah. course you know people like me who's in amenity horticulture I'm, I'm vastly reliant on production horticulture specialists because you know if i don't have them i don't have plants <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely no it's a very very skilled area for sure Okay, well, going back to your role at Peach Grove Garden at the moment. So another kind of hat that you have on is that you actually are the head gardener there, even when the cameras aren't rolling. Um, You've kind of talked about how your time is split a little bit, but I want to know how differently you have to garden knowing that it's going to be filmed. Very different. It's so interesting because it's not like anything I've ever done before. Um, Mm. it's almost akin to private service. So when I worked as the head gardener of a private estate, I very much ran the garden where I made the garden look as good as I could. But at the same time, the ultimate goal for the family hiring me is that they had a contract with the florist to grow cut flowers. So I did that. And they also just wanted a year round supply of fruit and vegetables. And occasionally they'll have a big party or a soiree and they'll they'll want the house dressed up. You know, they want the library and the drawing room all dressed up with fresh cut flowers and and, you know, specimen plants from the glass houses and that kind of thing. And that was about it. Yeah. And Beach Grove is almost a little bit similar in nature. It's very different because when I worked in public gardens, there was a pressure to have every single bit of it looking fantastic all the time because people are paying money to come in 
they're there for an experience they're there to see it whereas beach grove we're not open to the public it's private and we're making a television program so the garden is very much seen as a green studio and what i had to get my head around is I don't have to have every morsel of the garden looking fantastic all the time because we simply do not have the people to do that. You know, I don't have enough gardening hours between myself. You know, I'm, I'm here full time. And then we have two other gardeners who do one does two days a week, one does one day a week. And that's about it. So mm. for the size of garden, it's it's nearly four acres. What we have to do really is I have to look at the program schedule and the planner in advance, see what's going to be coming up decide right where are we filming that how are we filming it what materials and tools do we need for that and then i have to make sure that everything's set up ready and organized to for that shoot and i have to make sure that the areas that it's being shot in obviously look their best and that everything's just good to go to make it as smooth an experience as possible on that tuesday when everybody's in filming because you know of course there is a little it's not too pressurized but there is a bit of an element of time is money you know you've got a sound guy you've got yeah. cameramen you've got the director assistant director you've got runners um you've got people who are there and we're trying to make a program as quickly and slick and smooth as possible so my job is to facilitate that and to make sure that everything's organized and the more color i can input on camera the more glorious the garden can look the better mm. but at the same time if there's an area that's maybe not looking as nice but it's not going to be seen then it doesn't matter too much if you understand me so really fundamentally i have to make sure the garden looks as good as possible the main goal is to make sure of what's getting filmed looks great and then any free time i have is then spent on going around the rest of the garden and trying to get it as up to scratch as possible because that means that should that area be filmed later then I've got less work to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Completely. Mm. So is is the garden quite influenced by what's going to be talked about on the show, or is it kind of the other way round, or do you make sure you've got kind of a variety of different things in the garden? How does it work? Um, so the garden is split into three areas. So there's the glasshouse and trials area, which. That, of course, very much is influenced by what we're growing that year. So, for example, this year Mm. it was the 45th anniversary sapphire year. So we had a big blue theme. So in the glass house and trials area, we trialed different dried flowers that Carol wanted to do. And in the glass houses, we did a windowsill tomato trial. And we also did a lot of blue themed things. So I did blue chilies um we did a lot of blue bedding for all filling all the annual containers and that kind of thing um the second section of the garden is the productive area so it's sort of the mixed vegetable plot and the wildflower lawn and there's mixed borders so again that can change quite a lot year on year so this year we did different types of ornamental gourds and sweet corn and pumpkins and then the mixed vegetable plot was we did blue well, I say blue. We did sweet peas that were supposed to be of a blue theme, but I don't think any of them were actually properly blue. They were all they're all <laughs> called blue, but they're all purple, really. Um, uh, well, such as a lot of <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, that changes year on year because obviously we don't want to mm. grow the same vegetables every year. We always change that. But the the last section of the garden is the ornamental area, which doesn't change so much because that's all kind of set in stone, really. Uh, maybe with minor tweaks, but 
you know, there we've got the bog garden and we've got the wildlife garden. We've got a seaside garden. We've got an alpine garden, secret garden. Um, we've got a driveway one. We've got a dry scree. Just all the little, it, it's lots and lots of little rooms. I would describe Beach Grove as it has yeah. lots of lots of little miniature areas which all represent different styles of gardens or zones or climates, mm. um, which is really interesting because obviously on camera it makes Beach Grove look gigantic. It makes it look like we're <laughs> about forty acres or something, but it's just the it's just the way the camera works. It's quite clever. We've got a four acre garden, but there's so many little zones and areas. Um, just to give lots of different examples, really, and the camera really does add ten pounds. I will, I will clarify that. Yeah, <laughs> you see yourself on camera, and you go, "Oh God, I don't look like that, do?" <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've experienced the same. I I tend to just not look back now. It's just easier. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you feel like climate change is affecting the way that you garden at Beech Grove, or what you garden? There's certainly a, uh, an element of that, I would say, because to me. The main thing I notice up here in not so sunny northeast of Scotland is that the seasons seem to have shifted slightly. Mm. So, you know, the good old days, it used to feel, uh, I'm saying the good old days, I'm only 33, but even (laughs) even not that long ago, to me, it used to feel like you had your November, December, January was freezing cold, snowy, really wintry, whereas at the moment it now feels like those months just tend to be a bit sort of wet, damp. Mm. Um, not quite the same snow and cold as there once was, whereas it now feels when we get to end of February, beginning of March to mid-March up here is when we get that snow, when we get that really cold period. So it feels like everything's been pushed back somewhat. And we are often finding that we tend to get quite a, a hot spring followed by an immediate cold snap, which is not so good for the likes of the pollinators. You know, we had places like Pitmead and Garden where we had so many different types of apples. Um, We were quite reliant, of course, on the weather to get good blossom and then to get those pollinators out. And obviously that will turn it into the apples. But when we were getting weather where it was nice and warm and sunny, the blossom came out, it looked fabulous. And then just as you wanted the pollinators to come out, it would be like, bang, horrible cold snap. All the bees would go and hibernate away back into their into their hives. And a lot of the fruit would be unpollinated, which was a disaster. Um, and there does feel just just oddities in the weather in general. So this, this, this year we had a really, really hot, dry June we didn't have a drop of rain so i was out watering a lot in june Mm. and then july it was the opposite it never stopped raining um and it just feels a little bit i don't know a a little bit um less predictable i suppose is what you would say it just feels a bit more unpredictable a bit less a bit less comfortable than it used to um and uh, yeah, I mean, we just have to do what we can and work with the weather as we can, I suppose. Um, I know a lot of places, perhaps warmer climates, unlike here, are having to start adapting to plants that are more drought tolerant and more heat tolerant and this kind of thing. Um, up here, it's not so much the case yet because, well, global warming, I'm still counting anything that's high teens as a really hot day you know it's what you <laughs> what you'd call in scotland taps off weather you get your t-shirt off because it's high teens 
Um, <laughs> it's maybe not the same as Cornwall where you're getting, you know, high 30s or London where you're really pushing very, very warm temperatures. So Yeah, you're just melting into the concrete. And... <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have that kind of extreme heat up here yet. So climate change, I don't know, just feels like a shift into the seasons a little bit and maybe... Maybe more freak weather events, so storms, high winds, things like that during the winter are becoming a little bit more prevalent. Yeah, lots of um, extremes, aren't there? Yeah, so I don't feel, to be honest, I don't feel I've massively had to make a change yet, but that's not to say it's not something that does need looked into and really thought about for the future. Yeah. How important do you think it is to educate uh, consumers about what's happening and kind of some of the movements we're seeing in the industry around, like you said, drought tolerant planting, but also, I guess, things like going peat free, you know, those sorts of movements we're seeing in the industry? Yeah, hugely. Uh, peat free affects us all. And if, if anything, I found massively, it makes a huge difference to me uh, as a grower as well, because although I'm not a production horticulturalist who's having to, you know, make my livelihood from it, even this year, just at Beech Grove, we were all peat free and I was doing my best. You know, I showed I showed the public the mixes I use, whereby I, I sieve all my peat compost to get all of the sort of detritus and all the thick, I don't know, I don't know what half of it's made of, some of this peat free compost. It's, it's, it's like sweepings off the barbershop floor or something. Um, you know, I, I was having to sieve it to get rid of all that thick, clumpy stuff that wasn't really conducive to seed germination. Um, and I would mix it with sand. I would mix it with uh, riddled leaf mold to try and get a nice, friable mix and something that was really good for the seeds to get going and germinate. But the problem is that you can get the texture consistency, but then you're not getting the nutritional consistency. So even... If you are peat free, you're then having to put in, uh, you know, frills or, or pearls or something to to give it some sort of long term feed, and then you're also having to go back and feed yeah. it with additional feeds. So at Beach Grove, we didn't use any bought in feeds. We made our own comfrey tea and fed everything with comfrey tea, which was very good. But um, just generally, I was finding the medium to be very unpredictable. It would be bone dry on the top the top inch or so would look really dry and then if you stuck a, a water meter or a moisture meter into it you would find that actually it was very wet so the top would look dry but the medium underneath was wet so it was very easy to accidentally just only go by eye and water everything more than it needed to be watered and just um finding that it would be wet and then it would dry out very suddenly as well which was unusual um okay so inconsistent is what i would say that there seems to be for me the problem with peat free is inconsistency um it can vary very very much between different companies brands products um you know if you go for B&Q Verve range is very different to Miracle Grow, which is very different to um Silver Grow, which is different to the next one and none of them seem to have a standardized recipe and you can find that even between batches of the very same brand it can be different as well um mm, you know i was finding i could buy one brand and get a palette of it and use it up and then i'd go order another palette of it and then when that arrived that was different to the one before and you think oh yeah that's interesting <laughs> um so yeah peat free inconsistent and things like that now i think 
for me, I'm a realist. And for people at home, okay, it's maybe annoying, but it's not the end of the world if they have a little bit of problem growing. They'll just have to kind of get on board with it. But I think where it really is a pain is for people in production horticulture, where that is their livelihood. If they don't produce well, that could be them bankrupt, you know, in massive debt. They might have a crop that fails. It's big pressure for someone like that. And I think that there needs to be a bit more research and industry analysis as to how professional growers and nurseries deal with the transition to peat free because of course i say let's say i'm not in production horticulture i'm no specialist but i am reliant on production horticulture to produce plants for me to do my job so it all has a knock-on effect and peat free i think it just feels like the beginning of a new journey which is the correct way to go i do think we should be peat free we should be more environmentally friendly but there needs to be much more research and trials into it and much more consistency and i don't think that you can just snap your fingers and do it overnight you know it's like it's like going from oil to electric or wind or solar energy you know it's the correct thing to do but you're gonna have to do it and put the infrastructure in place and do the research and you can't just expect to as a government just to snap your fingers and say right everybody's peak free in two years because you know, that's such an ill-educated way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So your career seems to really be taking off and you kind of seem to be one of these people who just says yes to, to everything. And you're a fantastic example <laughs> of what saying yes can do for you because I am definitely one of those people as well. Um, and I think it's a great attitude to have and a great attitude for, for somebody to follow. But for anybody listening who would love to become a head gardener, what's some more advice that you could kind of give them? Or if they'd like to get into TV gardening or anything like that? That's a good question, actually. Um, yeah, I do say yes to a lot of things because opportunity is rare. And when opportunity comes along, you say yes, you grab it with both hands and you take it. And it's by saying yes to things that you'll suddenly find it opens another vista, you know, another door opens and you'll say yes to that. And then another avenue opens, you'll say yes to that. And before you know it, you're miles away from where you were at the beginning. So I've always found that for me, it feels a little bit like what's for you won't go past you. Mm. I've kind of always sort of believed that in some ways. But I have uh, I would say, honestly, that I've just said yes to whatever I could. And I've tried to express and to expand and to push myself a lot as well, which I think some people don't do. Some people get comfortable and I never allow myself to get comfortable. Mm. What I always do is I work at a job and once I feel like I'm comfortable, I know what I'm doing, I'm happy, then I push myself into doing something different because I want to learn more. So I've never stayed at a place for huge lengths of time where I've been able to get comfortably complacent, if that makes sense. Um, I've always wanted to push myself on and try hard. And I do things like I did my RHS level three diploma at home uh, in my own time with a newborn son um, with work at the same time you know I was just using my free time to educate myself and to push myself on and to get through the exams and then when I completed my diploma I went to the next step so I'm currently doing my master's uh, so I'm doing the RHS Master of Horticulture Mm -hmm. course which again nobody makes you do it (laughs) but for me it's a great way to push yourself on and to learn more and to really evolve and 
you know, I've always believed that if you can be better than you were yesterday, that's it. That's all you need to do. Just push yourself, be better than you were yesterday, learn something new, go out and speak to someone and, and gather some new information or read a new book or watch a, a program or listen to a podcast and just continually grow because horticulture is so vast that you will never, ever know everything. No. You just won't. And there's so much out there that if you're happy to just sit there and not learn anything, you, you're not going to develop or grow. And that's what I've always done is tried to push myself on and, and develop and grow. And I always felt like every time I took a, a new job, I was scared. Uh, every new job I've went to, I've thought, am I ready for this? Can I do this? And that fear is good because that fear pushes you to try harder. And by trying harder, you learn more, you become more experienced and you, you really grow. So every, yeah, every, every job I've had, I've been a little bit like, well, I don't know if I'm a hundred percent ready for this, but let's go. Yeah. And so far it's served me very well. Yeah, absolutely. And best of luck with the masters. I know how, how demanding they are and, um, and tough. So I think that's great that you're kind of doing it just to widen your horizons and, and learn more. What else does the future hold for you? What are some of your other goals and ambitions? Are there any episodes of, of Beechgrove Garden that you'd love to film? Any subjects you'd love to talk about? Uh, yeah, tropical planting with a hammock. that I can just sit there and have a couple of mimosas or something. That would be good. <laughs> yeah, peanut butter, yeah. <laughs> um, no, again, this is another odd thing is I've never really had a plan. I've never really thought... I want to do X, Y, and Z. I've always just rolled with the punches. I've always been pragmatic and just went, I'll go where I'm meant to go and do what I'm meant to do. And all I can do is, like I say, try my hardest to to learn new things and to gather information and to see what opportunities come up. That's the main thing. When an opportunity crops up, you go for it. And just yeah. see where life takes you almost really you know I never ever planned to be at Beech Grove I never planned to be a gardener in the first place but even when I did become a gardener and I was bitten by the garden bug uh, I never thought oh one day I want to be at Beech Grove or one day I want to be on television or anything like that it, you know everything has just came about by accident almost really um, and like you say it's just by constantly saying yes there's an opportunity yes I'll do it yes I'll let's go for it that these things begin to snowball. I mean, LinkedIn has been a particularly interesting platform for me because I had I had things like Instagram and I had Facebook and all these things, and they never really did much for me. But when I joined LinkedIn, I've had a bizarre amount of opportunities come just through that. And LinkedIn, all I was literally doing was just going to my work, taking photos and saying, hey, here's what I'm up to today. And you start getting people interested. Weirdly, you start getting people following you and liking your content. And then next thing you know, um, you have people asking you, oh, you know, you, you seem to know what's going on. Do you want to be on my podcast? And you say yes to that. And then <laughs> next thing you know, I had um, the local newspaper, the Press and Journal up here in Aberdeen, which is uh, DC Thompson. Uh, the editor for that just said, well, Jim McCall, who was a presenter on Beach Grove, he's retiring uh you seem like you know what you're what you're on about do you fancy writing the newspaper column every week and I went yeah absolutely and that's it so you know through LinkedIn I've been offered podcasts I've Amazing. suddenly got a job writing a weekly gardening column um you know I've had people 
come up to me and offer me all sorts of strange stuff just because they see what you're doing on a daily basis anyway. So I think it's all part of sharing, as I say, sharing the knowledge, sharing what you're doing, being open to people and, you know, the amount of people as well that they'll speak to you. And then when you reply back to them, they're like, oh, oh, I didn't think you would say hello. And I'm like, yeah, of course I'll say hello. You know, I'm, oh. I'm a human, you're a human. You know, you, you get, I mean, this is where it's like, you know, you just need to start sort of having a bit of a reality check. My wife always says she's my reality check. She's like, you're not that important. Just get on with it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I had somebody say like, oh, I'm so starstruck and I met you and, and it was lovely and all this. And I'm going like, why are you starstruck? You know, I'm just I'm just a dude. You know, I'm a person. You're a person. I'm I'm no more important or special or better than anybody here. And you know, we're all just in an amazing field, which is horticulture. And let's all just share and be together and enjoy it together. You know. Yeah, absolutely. What a lovely, lovely note to uh, wrap up the podcast on. Uh, just before we do finish, though, my last question for you is one that we ask every guest, and that is, what plant would you take to a desert island? So for me, I would pick caraway, uh, which is, you know, carom carvey. Um, the reason for that is not that I like it. I don't. It tastes like aniseed, and <laughs> I don't like aniseed. Um, but the reason I always say I'd pick that is because it's that plant which brought me and my wife together. Um, when I was working as an apprentice all those years ago, about 11, 12 years ago, I was an apprentice and I just happened to be working at an event that night where it was something truly embarrassing. I think it was a Michael Bublé tribute night. <laughs> and and you were Michael Bublé. And... <laughs> I wish I would have had all this sort of 50-somethings after me, but no. Um, I was doing car parking. Ah. How glamorous. <laughs> Uh, it just happened to be that I was the apprentice there and my wife no longer worked in the tea room, but she did used to work in the tea room when she was a student and she happened to just come in that night to see her old pals. And she heard I was the new gardener. So she, you know, she came up to me with this plant in her hand and she says, do you know what this is? Because I asked the head gardener and she couldn't remember. So I identified it as caraway. And, you know, we both had a laugh and then that was it. That was the end that got us talking. And then I invited her to my barbecue. I was having the next weekend and there you go. And, you know, now the rest is history. Yeah. 12 years later, we're married. I've got a six year old son and so on. So that plant for me always has a special place in my heart because of that. And I feel like it just, it just reminds you that, as I say, I always feel what's for you won't go past you. I always have a bit of a believer in destiny. And it's just the funniest thing can spark off a whole range of events that happen. Mm. So I just feel like be open to life, be open to opportunity, be prepared to grab what you can and don't be afraid to try. Yeah, absolutely. I love that phrase. I'm going to say that all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us on the podcast. I could probably talk to you for hours and hours longer, but I will stop us there. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Happy to come back and waffle rubbish anytime to you, Rachel. <laughs> Perfect. I'm Rachel Forsyth, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. Make sure you never miss one. Subscribe or follow Horticulture Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. If you are interested in producing a podcast with Horticulture Week, email us at hortweek at haymarket.com. 
Huge thank you again to Scott and goodbye for now.